Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. February 5th, 1880. Amidst the smoking rubble on the west side of Lot 18, Concession 8, in the township of Biddulph, Ontario, otherwise known as the Roman Line, laid the charred corpses of four family members from a uniquely infamous household. The townsfolk milled about the property, with looky-loos coming out of the woodwork to catch a glimpse of the violence. As the constables documented evidence and collected testimony from the relevant crime scenes, journalist Mr. Payne walked about the devastating remnants of the Donnelly farm and scribbled notes for his impending article. And for most in the town, indeed the majority of the fledgling nation-state of Canada, would have to settle for newspapers' accounts of the horrendous scene. One of the largest media companies in Ontario at the time, the London Advertiser, wrote of the fiery carnage. Quote, The wildest excitement reigns through the township of Biddulph. About midnight, 20 persons went to the house of James Donnelly Sr. and knocked at the door. The inmates of the house were James Donnelly Sr., about 70 years of age, his wife Joanna, age 60, Thomas Donnelly, about 21 years of age, Bridget Donnelly, age 25 years old, and James Connors, age 12. Their son John, aged 28, usually resided at home with his father, but this evening he had gone to his brother William's house, about three miles away, on the 8th concession. As before stated, about midnight, a gang of men, many of them dressed in women's clothing, knocked at the door and demanded admittance. Thomas Donnelly, the son, went to the door and was immediately arrested by the crowd. An altercation ensued. Thomas, being outside the door when the cry was raised and one of the men who carried a spade appears to have struck him on the head with that instrument and another man used a pick. He fell down, probably dead, and was then thrown inside the door. The other inmates of the house, with the exception of James Connors, the boy, were then clubbed and beaten to death." End quote. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms a dark cast network show dedicated to uncovering the nexus between sectarian violence and political true crime storytelling. I am your host, Gregory Zink, and today we will be looking at a topic that has long fascinated the minds of Canadian historical observers, one that involves religious tribalism, long-held grudges, frontier violence, staunch rebelliousness, media manipulation, bitter decades-long reprisals, and eventually, Horrific Vigilante Justice. I will now be presenting a condensed version of the infamous tale of the Black Donnellys. 
and I chose this topic because it was requested of me by someone who I love with all my heart. This episode is dedicated to my mother on her birthday. She has always been an amazing influence on my life, and I can't begin to describe how much she has done for me over the years. So happy birthday, Mom, and I hope you enjoy this specially crafted present. The Black Donnellys were an Irish immigrant family who became notorious for their involvement in crime, violence, and eventually a series of brutal murders at the hands of local townsfolk. Their story is one of rural feuds, community tension, religiously derived vendettas, and a tragic end. They originated from County Tipperary, Ireland, and settled in the rural township of Biddulph, Ontario during the mid-19th century. James Sr. and Joanna Donnelly, along with their five children, James Jr., William, Bridget, Robert, and Thomas, established a farm and became part of the local community. However, tensions between the Donnellys and their neighbors began to escalate over time. The Donnellys were seen by many as squatters, outsiders, criminals, and their perceived brash behavior and involvement in dozens of alleged petty crimes fueled the local animosity. Additionally, they were of Irish Catholic descent, which added to the existing religious and cultural divisions in the area which was split between them and their Protestant counterparts, rehashing the centuries-old rivalry from the old country in England. Violence and crime became increasingly prevalent with both the Donnellys and their neighbors engaging in retaliatory acts. The Donnellys were accused of theft, arson, horse mutilation, and assault, while their enemies would randomly target their property and livestock. The escalating conflict earned the Donnelly family a fearsome reputation with rumors and stories of their involvement in illicit acts spreading throughout the region. The climax of the family's notoriety came on a night in February of 1880. A group of masked assailants, suspected to be locals seeking revenge, attacked the Donnelly farmhouse and brutally murdered five of their clan. The gruesome murder shocked the community and received widespread national media attention. The trial that followed, however, failed to secure convictions due to lack of evidence and witness intimidation. The case would become a symbol of lawlessness, vigilantism, and corruption within the Canadian justice system. Indeed, the Black Donnelly story has since become part of Canadian folklore capturing the imagination of writers, playwrights, and historians. The tale is often seen as a tragic and cautionary reminder of the destructive power of revenge, gossip, prejudice, and the breakdown of community bonds. For as was written in the St. Mary's Argus of 1880, shortly after the mass slaughter and arson set about the Donnelly farm, quote, we cannot say the people were horrified as they no doubt would have been for any but the notorious family who have made their name a terror in the adjourning township. 
While every person regrets that so foul a deed was perpetrated, no one regrets that the community is rid of most of a family who have made themselves a terror to a part of the country in which they resided." End quote. But can we take any of these accusations against the Donnellys seriously? Were they a household of rebellious criminals, or simply a misunderstood and maligned family who were making their way in a very rough world? And how much did the media play into the popular community conception of the Donnellys? Were they unfairly routed by Protestant newspapers and economic competitors who inflamed sectarian animus against them? And finally, did they deserve the pitchfork and torch-wielding justice that was meted out against them on that deathly cold and fiery night in February of 1880? Let's take a look at the timeline that led up to the mob violence of this shocking crime. James and Joanna Donnelly had settled in Biddulph Township in Ontario, Canada in the mid-1800s. They acquired a piece of land on Lot 18 Concession 7 where they established their farm and began cultivating it, not knowing or perhaps not caring that the land they settled upon was contestedly owned by another Catholic in the area. The Farrell family, led by Patrick Farrell, also owned property in close proximity to the Donnelly farm. The exact nature of the land dispute remains somewhat unclear, but it is believed that it centered around conflicting claims over property boundaries. One prevailing account suggests that the Donnellys, in the process of expanding their farm, may have unintentionally encroached upon a portion of land that the Pharaohs believed to be theirs. This encroachment likely triggered a series of disputes and confrontations between the two families. As tensions grew, allegations and accusations were traded back and forth. The Farrells insisted that the Donnellys were unlawfully occupying their land, while the Donnellys maintained that their property boundaries were properly established. The dispute became increasingly contentious and emotional, with each side feeling a strong sense of ownership and resentment towards the other. Eventually, after 14 years, they would agree to a settlement that would see the 100-acre parcel of land divided in half and the Donnellys outright owning their 50-acre share. But the feud wouldn't end there. According to historical accounts and oral traditions, tensions between the Donnelly and Farrell families continued to escalate over this lose-lose compromise. In one version of the story, it is said that during a community work project organized to build a road, James Donnelly Sr. encountered Patrick Farrell. The encounter quickly turned into a heated argument, fueled by copious amounts of alcohol, with both men asserting their claims to the disputed land. The argument quickly escalated into a physical altercation during which James Donnelly Sr. struck Patrick Farrell in the head with a wooden spike, causing a fatal injury. Author and historian Ray Fazakis explores the aftermath of the fatal incident. Writing in the Donnelly album, he states that, quote, Patrick Farrell's corpse was taken home. 
carried past the Donnelling farm where, no doubt, some of Farrell's relatives muttered oaths of vengeance usual to such unhappy occasions. You'll curse the day that it happened, one might have said. Bad says to him and his childer, another might reply, and a third would enjoin, may he never die till he sees his own funeral. Laid out to await the coroner, who did not arrive at the Farrell shanty for two days, the body of Patrick Farrell decomposed in the warm summer weather. When Dr. Charles Moore arrived for the post-mortem examination, poor Pat Farrell was quite unrecognizable. The coroner convened an inquest at Bob McLean's Exchange Hotel on the gravel road of Bidolf the following Sunday. After only two witnesses had been heard, the inquest was adjourned and the constables were dispatched to arrest James Donnelly. Appearing at his shanty, the peace officers were confronted by his defiant wife, who told them that her husband had cleared out. The coroner would have to proceed without him. Witnesses deposed that Donnelly had been standing in the doorway of his shanty the day after the murder. Cornelius Lanigan saw him there. Eventually, the jury brought in its verdict on July 1st, 1857, at Patrick Flanagan's Tavern, where the inquest had reconvened. It was said that, quote, James Donnelly, not having the fear of God before his eyes, but moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, with a certain wooden handspike of the value of one penny, feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, the said Patrick Farrell did kill and murder, and then fled. End quote. The killing of Patrick Farrell served as a major turning point in the Donnelly and Farrell feud. The incident heightened tensions and further fueled the cycle of violence and retribution between the families. It intensified the animosity within the community and deepened the divide between those who sympathized with the Donnellys and those who supported the Farrells. And after the aforementioned trial, James Donnelly Sr. was convicted of the crime and sentenced to be executed by hanging. However, his sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. He was transferred to Kingston Penitentiary to serve his sentence. The Kingston Penitentiary, established in 1835, was a maximum security prison known for its strict conditions and harsh treatment of its inmates. It housed some of Canada's most dangerous and notorious criminals. As an inmate at Kingston Pen, James Donnelly Sr. would have experienced a regimented and austere prison life. The conditions in the prison were harsh, with limited personal freedoms and strict discipline. Inmates were subject to rigid routine, hard labor, and isolation from the outside world. While serving his sentence, James Donnelly Sr. endured the physical and psychological challenges of life in a penitentiary. He would have faced the daily hardships of prison life, including monotony, the strict rules, and the constant surveillance by prison authorities. It is worth noting that James Donnelly Sr.'s imprisonment at the Kingston Penitentiary was not a lifelong sentence. After serving approximately 10 years of his sentence, he was granted parole. Following his release from prison, James Donnelly Sr. returned to the Bidolf area. However, the notoriety surrounding the Donnelly and Farrell feud persisted, and the family continued to face social isolation and ongoing conflicts within the Catholic community. 
The next case study in this increasingly contentious affair of the Donnellys and Biddulph Township was William Donnelly's love life. William held the position of the second eldest son within the family, and despite being born with a club foot, he possessed a striking appearance despite his delicate health as a child. Regarded as the de facto brains and leader of the Donnelly clan, William would later go on to begin a self-learned lawyer and spearheaded endeavors such as the ill-fated plot to abduct or rescue, depending on your interpretation, of Margaret Thompson, whom he deeply loved. Eventually, William's path would lead him to marry Nora Kennedy, a decision that also displeased the Kennedy family greatly. Alongside his marriage, William developed a reputation for breeding horses and delved into the stagecoach industry, which we'll get into shortly. And he would eventually find himself in conflicts with both James Carroll and Father John Connolly, demonstrating his unwillingness to back down from a position he thought to be righteous. Furthermore, he would fearlessly challenge various members of the yet-to-be-formed Vigilance Committee, and tragedy struck when his brother John was shot at William's residence on that fateful night of February 4, 1880. The assailants mistakenly believed that they had taken William's life, but devastated by the loss of his loved ones, he devoted himself relentlessly to bringing the perpetrators to justice. Subsequent to that, William would assume the role of a constable in Glencoe for the remainder of his life. But getting back to the Margaret Thompson affair, William fell in love with her in the summer of 1872. They were star-crossed lovers reminiscent of Romeo and Juliet, their families informal enemies because of their religious fixations, the Donnellys being Catholic and the Thompsons Protestant. They nonetheless ignored the social pressures by their communities and engaged in a secret love affair across farms and through handwritten letters. Historian Fizakis writes that, quote, William Donnelly's engaging manner soon began to have its effect, and before long, word got back to the old folks on the Thompson home that one of the Donnellys was sparking their daughter. And worse still, the girl appeared not to be discouraging the affair. Have no fear, she assured her parents. I would rather suffer death than marry William Donnelly. The family was reassured, but they underestimated the persuasive powers of Clubfoot Bill. He wore fine clothes, called himself a gentleman, played a mean fiddle at dances, and, with his quick mind and ready wit, kept the girls giggling and laughing. He too began driving stagecoach for Hugh McPhee of Lucan. He had money to burn and his blandishments soon turned poor Maggie's head completely. She fell madly in love with him. During the summer of 1872 and into 1873, their romance flourished further. By this time, Will Donnelly had begun his own stagecoach line and had taken up residence in the village, but he continued seeing Thompson frequently, and when they were not visiting, they exchanged letters. End quote. And here is one such letter dated from April 22, 1873. Dear William, I address you with these few lines, hoping they will find you in good health, as they leave me enjoying the same blessing at present. 
Dear William, I was a long time about getting this picture for you. You can keep it now, in the hopes you think of me as much as I think of you. At the beginning of another term of our future summer, which we could look back upon with pleasure, I desire to bear testimony to the faithfulness with which you have labored for my benefit, and the kindness with which you have ever shown towards me. Yours truly, Maggie Thompson. Shortly thereafter, William Donnelly replied with his intention to marry Maggie. Within one week's time of receiving this letter, William replied with a wedding proposal to Maggie. This was her lettered response from April 30th, 1873. Dear William, I now wish to inform you that I have made up my mind to accept your kind offer, as there is no person in this world I sincerely love more than you. This is my last and only secret, so you will only let no person know about it. But I cannot mention any certain time yet. You can acquaint my parents about it any time you wish after the 1st of November next time. Any time it is convenient to you will please me if it is in five years after the time I mentioned. If it does not suit you to wait so long, you can let me know about it, and I will make it all right. Do not think I would say you are soft in writing so often. For there is nothing you would give me greater pleasure than to hear from you. I think soft turns is very scarce about you. If you have heard anything of the kind after me, I hope that you will attribute it to a desire on my part to give you no pain, but regard it as thoughtless behavior of my youth. After this, Maggie began dropping subtle hints to her parents that they should prepare for an impending wedding. But old man Thompson was wise to the scheme. No daughter of his would ever be married to one of the Black Donnellys. And after rummaging through her bedroom and discovering the letters written to William, he became enraged with his daughter Maggie. After what was likely a series of physical and mental abuses, he sent her off to a neighboring farm to hide her from William. And after months of sparse contact between William and Maggie, William began to grow frustrated and angry towards the Thompsons and their entire family. He vowed to get his future wife back, regardless of the cost. And it was after receiving a letter in December of 1873 that William decided to hatch a scheme to steal back his bride. She wrote to William, quote, I address you with these few lines to let you know I am well, and hopes you are enjoying the same blessing. I wish to let you know but a little of the performance I had to go through since I came up here. My friends heard about me writing letters to you, which caused an awful storm, so that I could not attempt to ask to go anywhere else. And on that account, you will please excuse me for not writing to you so often. Dear William, I would rather be in the grave than home. I will never have anything like a chance of fulfilling my promise of marriage with you except you come to take me away by force, and if you think as much as me now as you always did, I trust you will relieve me before long. I burnt your letters when they commenced to abuse me about you, for they would surely get them if I did not do something with them. Excuse my bad writing, for I am in an awful hurry, as it is in the office I am writing it. No more present from your loving friend. Margaret Thompson.
and after a couple weeks of planning, William and eight of his friends decided that on January 9th, 1874, they would commence to set upon the Thompson household and steal back William's beloved Maggie. Donnelly and his men pretended to be sheriffs issuing a warrant for arrest for a horse thief and to search the premises. Old man Thompson was wise to the scheme, and after some poorly rehearsed banter back and forth between the alleged sheriffs and Thompson, they quickly discovered the real reason for their setting about the Thompson farm. Historian and author Fazakis writes that Thompson said, quote, well, then, read me the warrant for this horse thief, then. Show me the warrant, would ye? None of them made a motion to produce anything, and the old man's voice rose. It's not a horse thief you're after at all, but me daughter. You're all looking for me daughter. One of the men replied, You're right, Thompson. We've come to get your daughter. Where is she? A smile of grim satisfaction creaked across the old man's face as he answered, She's not here, boys. I warrant ye that. You'll not get her tonight. After a thorough but hasty search of the farm, Donnelly and his men did not find any trace of Maggie, nor would they ever because she was placed at a completely different part of town. Eventually, Thompson would make his way to the London Magistrate's office where he would complain of the outrages against him and his family, including the assaults, the unwarranted invasions of his property, and the attempted kidnapping of his daughter. And after paying some minor fines and becoming distracted with his stagecoach business, William eventually dropped the matter and said goodbye to his beloved Maggie forever. And this is the point in our timeline when the media started to influence public opinion about the Donnelly brothers. Case in point is an article from the London Free Press of 1874 entitled The Biddulph Ku Klux, an obvious reference to the Ku Klux Klan movement that was burgeoning in the United States in the post-Civil War era. And this is a clear case of slander by the media because up until that point, and indeed not until the 1920s, there was no organized or even informal Ku Klux Klan movements in Ontario. But naming and shaming the Donnelly family seemed to be at the forefront of the community's concern. And despite all the communal and media factors that were going against the Donnellys, they decided to open their own business. The inception of the Donnelly Stagecoach Line is believed to have occurred in May of 1873, initiated by William Donnelly, which turned out to be an immense triumph. William and his brothers Michael, John, and Thomas operated the stagecoach service that traversed between London, Lucan, and Exeter. Their enterprise grew so prosperous that it even posed a formidable challenge to the official mail stage which had been in operation since 1838. Their top rival, the Hackshaw Stage Line, soon faced intense competition from the Donnellys. In October of 1873, Hackshaw made the decision to sell his stage line to Patrick Flanagan, a determined and sturdy Irishman who aimed to force the Donnellys out of business. This development set the stage for a bitter rivalry between the Donnelly and Flanagan stages. 
a conflict that later became known as the Stagecoach Feud. And during this feud, stages were either vandalized, set ablaze, horses were brutally mistreated or killed, and stables were reduced to ashes. The violence that ensued as a consequence of the Stagecoach Feud was largely attributed to the Donnellys, which would further tarnish their family name and reputation within Biddulph. Yet, henceforth, almost every criminal act was linked to the Donnelly family, and although they faced numerous accusations, few convictions were actually secured against them. And it must be remembered that at this time, the stagecoach business was a serious endeavor. Each coach line had its own supporters and clients, ones that were frequently poached by rival stagecoach businesses. This fierce competition eventually brewed over into direct violence. The people of Bidolf would eventually see the Flanagans and the Donnellys engage in violent altercations for clients and fares. Once again, the Donnellys would draw the ire of their community by picking up nearly anyone who wanted a fare, not simply their clientele within the Irish Catholic community, but anyone who needed a ride. Eventually, and under unclear circumstances, the Flanagan coach line would eventually see their horse stable burned to the ground and their horses severely mutilated. It is said that the horses' tongues were cut out during this dispute. It was never conclusively determined who did the horse mutilations, but it was heavily suspected that the Donnellys were involved. Ultimately, in March of 1877, the Donnelly horse stable was eventually burned to the ground, killing dozens of their horses and dooming their coach business to bankruptcy. This event, coupled with the infamous behavior of the Donnelly brothers, eventually led their community to further suspect them of nearly all crimes that were committed in the Biddulph Township. Rightly or wrongly, but it seems like mostly wrongly, the Donnelly boys were forced to appear in court on charges stemming from assault, drunkenness, poisoning, horse mutilation, arson, and discharging firearms in public. These accusations would eventually dovetail in the spring of 1878. This is where Robert Donnelly was accused of firing his weapon at a constable. Amidst the drunken revelry at a local pub, Constable McKinnon had accosted Robert Donnelly and attempted to apprehend him for charges stemming from arson and assault. The details are mixed, but it seems as though Robert attempted to shoot the sheriff, but his handgun had missed its mark, and thus he was charged with attempted murder of a police officer. After a speedy court case, he was sentenced to two years in the Kingston Penitentiary. And although they were certainly guilty of certain crimes, the Donnellys were largely used as scapegoats by the surrounding community. If absolutely anything went wrong, it was the Donnellys to blame. Whether cattle went missing, there were assaults by unseen assailants, or even the simple misplacement of local farm implements, 
it was always the Donnellys who were put forth as the perpetrators. And despite the Donnellys being frequently blamed for every misdoing in the community, they were rarely, if ever, charged and officially found guilty of anything that was said to be done. These community tensions continued to escalate rapidly over the late 1870s, and whether guilty of actual accusations or not, the Donnellys seemingly embraced their notorious reputations. using it fully to their advantage when it came to their businesses and farm trades. And by this I mean intimidating their competition or using their perceived muscle to quell bubbling disputes. And all these aforementioned events would come to a head with the appearance of a new character into our story. The newly appointed Catholic minister, Father John Connolly. He was a recent Irish immigrant who made it his business to become deeply enmeshed within the local Biddulph community. He took his religious stances very seriously and very much wanted to be the shepherd to his local flock. And the more he came to know about his local community and congregation, the more he came to know about the bitter rivalry between the Donnellys and their neighbours on the Roman line. For after collecting literally dozens of reports from his congregation about the transgressions of the Donnelly family, he set forth a petition in his church to permanently right the situation. He did not want any internal strife infecting his small community. He waged war against the Donnellys to eliminate them from the community once and for all. It was at this point that Father Connolly began to include the Donnellys in his weekly sermons often calling them out by name and reminding his congregation to sign the petition at the front of the church. Parallel to these developments, a local vigilance community had sprung up in Biddulph County. This organization of concerned citizens modeled itself upon the ones that sprung up in the Wild West of the United States, often formed by concerned community members who wanted to tackle crime and violence within their jurisdiction. Ones that often ended in violent hangings for those accused of various crimes. Dozens of aggrieved citizens joined these vigilance committees, all who sought an end to the perceived reign of terror being inflicted by the Donnelly family. At this time, the community also saw the introduction of a new constable in their midst. His name was James Carroll, and he closely allied himself with the vigilance committee springing up in Biddulph. Whether lending a sympathetic ear to local townspeople or being duped by the media presentation of the Donnellys, he quickly made it his mission to help end the Donnelly plague. With the community authorities seemingly coalescing around this anti-Donnelly agenda, the situation would come to a head in the fall of 1879. William Thompson Jr., a local farmer, had noticed that one of his cows had gone missing. And without collecting any evidence whatsoever, he stormed into Lucan and loudly proclaimed to anyone that would listen that the Donnellys had poached his cattle. 
and although the disappearance of a single cow would not usually have registered such alarm, the people of Bidolf were especially alert to accusations involving the Donnellys. Within hours, Thompson had managed to rabble-rouse enough of the local citizenry to form an impromptu mob, many of whom had already signed Father Connolly's petition. Members of the local vigilance committee also caught wind of the going-ons. They latched on to the mob and held an informal emergency meeting at a local schoolhouse. After thoroughly whipping themselves up into an angry frenzy, they gathered handheld farm implements to be used as weapons, and a mob of 40 men went to directly accuse the Donnellys at their farm. At this point, James Donnelly Sr. was in his mid-60s, and only two Donnelly brothers, John and Thomas, still resided at the farm, although they were not present at this time. The elder James Sr. and his wife Joanna yelled profanities at the encroaching mob. Thoroughly ignoring their protestations, the angry mob pushed its way inside the Donnelly farm. Once inside the house, they angrily rummaged about in search of the missing cow, or at a bare minimum, any evidence of any crimes that the Donnellys may have committed over the previous years. Needless to say, the cow was not found anywhere on their property. Not wanting to go away empty-handed, the angry mob decided that the cow must have been placed at William Donnelly's farm only a few kilometers away. Once they arrived at William Donnelly's farm, he utilized his gained wisdom from dealing with the court system, and rather than threaten them, he instead coolly played them a bunch of ditties from his violin. Undeterred, the mob pushed its way into the house and scattered throughout the farm to try and secure the missing cow. But once again, they would leave empty-handed, all the while hearing William's violin playing as they threatened his farm. A couple days later, the cow mysteriously appeared. It was found in a wooden lot close by Thompson's farm. It seems as though it had simply wandered off. Needless to say, the Donnellys had absolutely nothing to do with this alleged crime. And even more surprising, James Donnelly Sr. had not ordered his sons to go around and assault the members of the mob. At the behest of their son William, James Sr. managed to convince local authorities to go and arrest many members of the mob. Eventually, 14 men were arrested for trespassing on the Donnelly farm, though this would eventually come to nothing. All of the accused men managed to convince local magistrates that they had been invited on the Donnelly farm to do a good-faith search of the premises. None of the charges stuck, and all of the men were released without penalty. This event only served to heighten the paranoia and anger of the Donnelly family towards their community, rightly feeling aggrieved and maligned by the people whom they have lived beside for decades. This caused them to have a deep distrust of law enforcement, the courts, and of justice in general towards them and their family. But things would get substantially worse for the Donnellys as time moved on. 
In the winter of 1879, they lost two of their sons. One succumbed to the tuberculosis disease, and the other was the victim of a vicious knife bite. And things would continue to escalate even farther. In January of 1880, the Vigilance Committee formed in an attempt to frame the Donnelly brothers. They concocted a scheme to burn down a barn and then frame the Donnellys with its arson. But, just as stupid as the accusations they were leveling against the Donnelly brothers, they did not succinctly time or plan this caper appropriately. For when they burned down the barn, many of the Donnelly brothers were at a local dance, drinking and having fun with their family members. After a magistrate's investigation, it was revealed that dozens of witnesses at the dance could attest to the Donnelly's whereabouts, and they were far away from the alleged arson they had committed. So instead, the Vigilance Committee decided to pin the crime upon the elderly James Sr. and his wife Joanna, both of whom were growing old and frail after decades of hard farm work. They often spent their days huddled around a stove inside the Donnelly household, leaving the heavier and harder work to their two youngest sons. Regardless of their elderly state, the Vigilance Committee commenced to set a trial upon the Donnellys for the arson in question. The trial began but was quickly adjourned after a lack of evidence and eyewitness testimony. But the trial was to continue on February 4, 1880, after local magistrates and lawyers were to collect more evidence. Taking into account James Sr. and Joanna's advanced age, they employed the services of a local farm boy to help them around the Donnelly farm, 13-year-old Johnny O'Connor. With the impending trial resuming on February 4th, James Sr. picked up the boy the day before and had the plan to have him work on the farm while they were away at the proceedings. So on the date of February 4th, 1880, there were five people inside of the Donnelly home. There were James Sr., Johanna, son Thomas, young Johnny O'Connor, and a relative named Bridget who had been visiting from Ireland. On the other side of town, the Vigilance Committee was meeting to discuss their plans for the impending trial. They rightly understood that the lack of evidence connecting the Donnellys to the arson would likely render a non-guilty verdict, and that this disgrace would be coupled with the fact that the Donnellys would then be in a position to countersue the mob for their excessive litigious actions. It was then and there that the Vigilance Committee made its final decision. Seeing the failure of the law courts to uphold their position, they decided to end the Donnelly scourge that night, once and for all. What you will now hear is author and historian Ray Fizakis's detail of that fateful night. Quote, Doors were not usually locked in Bidolf in those days. All was quiet inside the Donnelly home. Only the sound of heavy breathing breaking the still air. Constable Carroll tiptoed in. He was quite familiar with its interior, for he had gone through it more than once on searches not long before. 
Carol could make out the form of Tom Donnelly heavily asleep lying in his bed in a little room off the kitchen. Pulling out the handcuffs he had borrowed from Constable Hodgins, he walked quietly over to the bed and deftly slipped them on the wrists of his unsuspecting victim. When the cuffs snapped to lock, Tom Donnelly roused himself. What the bloody hell, he murmured, trying to shake the sleep from his head and confounded at finding himself handcuffed. You're under arrest, said Constable Carroll. Now get up and light a candle. As soon as his mother had heard Carol's voice, she rose and came bustling into the kitchen. From a small box on the kitchen table, she pulled out a match and lit a candle beside it. Bridget, Bridget, she called out. Get up and light a fire, please. Bridget Donnelly jumped out of the bed and began to dress. Carol picked up the candle from the table, went into the front room, and looked into the bedroom where old Mr. Donnelly and young O'Connor slept. Jim Donnelly stirred himself. Where's Jack? Carol asked. He's not home, murmured the old man, stirring up and in doing so throwing the bed covers over the young boy. Bridget Donnelly had donned her clothes and had gone out into the kitchen where Mrs. Donnelly handed her a knife to cut shavings for a fire. Where's Jack? Carol asked again. I told you before, Jack's not home, old Donnelly answered gruffly. What have you got against us now? He asked. I've got another charge against you, Constable Carroll answered. Wait, Tom, are you handcuffed? asked James Sr. Yes, Tom replied. He thinks he's smart. The old man slipped on his boots in the kitchen and clumped back into the bedroom. Where's me coat? he said in a raised voice. Does anyone know where me coat is? Mrs. Donnelly answered that she didn't know. The old man groped about the bedroom in half light. Carol came over to the bedroom door with candles still in hand. Johnny O'Connor, now fully wakened by the commotion, picked up the old man's greatcoat, which he had been using as a pillow, and held it out to him. Here it is, he said. All right, all right, said Tom Donnelly in a raised voice to Carol. Read the warrant already. In a very loud and excited voice, almost a shout, Carol cried out, There's lots of time for that. The next instant, he let out a whoop at the top of his voice. The door to the kitchen burst open, and a crowd of men rushed in. They, too, were whooping and howling. With their clubs, they began at once to beat the old man and the old woman and Tom Donnelly. Stricken with terror, Bridget flew out of the kitchen and into the front room, heading for the narrow and closed stairway to the loft. Little Johnny jumped out of bed and ran after her, but was brought up short when Bridget slammed the little door near the bottom of the stairs. Without even trying to open the door, he quickly whirled about and ran back into the old man's bedroom. As he passed the doorway to the kitchen, he caught a glimpse of a bloody and violent struggle in which the three Donnellys were being battered. Several of the men, including Jack Quigley, wielded their clubs so effectively that they were ever after referred to as clubby. Well, Long Jim Tuhi was said to have suffered a black eye in the tumult. Johnny O'Connor scrambled under the bed and cowered behind a large clothes basket that had been tucked under the high bedstead. In the kitchen, old Jim Donnelly fell in a few moments, his skull bashed in by repeated blows at the hands of his old nemesis, James Marr. Mrs. Donnelly's long, sturdy arms fended off the initial blows. As for Tom, as soon as the men rushed in, he too began to whoop and thresh about wildly flailing away not only with his manacled arms, but with his feet as well. 
He ducked and kicked and swung and bursting through his attackers, ran through the center doorway of the house into the front room and threw it to the front door. With barely a pause, he put his shoulder to the door. It almost came off at its hinges as it burst open. He ran out, but waiting outside near the door were others. Tom Ryder, waiting patiently with a pitchfork at the ready. Tom Donnelly did not get more than 10 feet from the door when he was struck down. He raised himself to his knees, but the pitchfork was thrust into him again and again. The blood spurted out in great gobs from the multiple wounds left by the steel tines. And in a moment, a great spreading patch of red stained the freshly fallen snow underneath him. Inside the house, Mrs. Donnelly shrieked at the top of her voice above the howls of her attackers. She fought courageously, but was beaten to her knees. A minute to pray, please, she gasped. Pray, you bitch, Carol hissed. You have prayed too long already. He struck at her. On her knees, she crawled, trying to follow her son into the front room, but made it only as far as the doorway and fell down. Outside, young James Marr, James Toohey, and Patrick Quigley picked up Tom Donnelly and carried him back inside, feet first. Johnny O'Connor under the bed heard the handcuffs rattle as they struck the floor when they dropped him. Peeking out from behind the clothes basket, he saw Tom's stocking feet. Donnelly let out a sickly moan. Carol cried out, hit this fellow on the head with that shovel and break his head open. Jim Toohey then seized Pat Quigley's spade, stepped up, and struck the fallen man three or four heavy blows of the shovel on the back of the head. Where's that girl? someone asked. Look upstairs, answered another. Several of the men trampled upstairs. There was a brief scuffle, a muffled scream of terror, and the men returned in a few moments, one of them carrying the limp female body across his shoulders. It's all done with, he said. During the wild commotion, no one had paid any attention to the old man's little dog which had began to yelp in terror when the men burst in. Now one of the men went over to the dog, still barking, and cracked its head open with one swipe of his club. John Purtle then ran over with his axe and chopped off the dog's head, kicking it almost underneath the stove. Jim Donnelly, perhaps only semi-cognizant of the situation, lied a few feet away and groaned heavily. The men then emptied their lamps, splashing the coal oil around the room and on the beds and set fire to it. It will burn off and go out, one of them said. More fuel was splashed about. When the flames blazed up, the whole troop tramped out through the kitchen door. Terror-stricken Johnny O'Connor hardly dared to breathe. What if they should change their minds and come back, he thought. The fire over his head got hotter. Scrambling up from under the bed, he seized his coat and tried to beat out the flames, but they were too strong. He quickly pulled on his pants and went to run out of the bedroom, but hesitated. Which way to turn? Tom lay within two feet of the front door, his head pointing north. He thought he heard him breathing, but wasn't sure. Worse still, he might be dead. His heart pounding, he squeezed by and raced through the kitchen, but not before catching a glimpse of the severed head of the little dog near the stove and the burning bedclothes in Tom's small bedroom. Finally, he burst out into the open air. Meanwhile, after leaving the Donnelly farm, 
the mob stopped for a short discussion about what they should do next. It was quickly decided that now that the work was started, it must be finished. As they trudged along to William Donnelly's house, they cast many a fearful glance back over their shoulders to watch the progress of the fire back at the Donnelly house. The flames soon licked up to each of the bodies, and if all four had not already given up the ghost, they soon died of suffocation. And before long, the blaze lit up the night sky of Bidolf. William Donnelly, thoroughly enjoying his night, noticed it was half past midnight. Putting another heavy stick of wood onto the stove, he went to bed. His wife, then between four and five months pregnant, had taken the outside position in the four-foot-wide bed, and Will tried playfully to nudge her. Push in, he said, but then when Nora didn't move, he climbed over and settled down on the inside. It was about two hours later when the vigilance committee reached his house. Once again, at the homestead, the men surrounded the home. This time, however, none of them seemed anxious to make an entry. They determined to try and get Donnelly into the open instead. A few of the men went to the stable, which housed Will's prize-breeding stallion, named Jack's Alive. They beat the horse mercilessly in order to lure its owner from the house, but it was to no avail. No one inside stirred. Martin McLaughlin and young Jim Ryder then approached the side door of the home, McLaughlin carrying a rifle and Ryder a shotgun. Creeping under the small veranda which sheltered the side door, young Ryder called out, Will, Will, fire, fire, open the door. William Donnelly heard and woke. He recognized the voice of that of young Ryder, whom he had known since the young man's birth. Visiting John Donnelly also heard and roused himself. He got up and as he walked through his bedroom toward the door, he mumbled, Well, someone is calling for you. Okay, 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 fine, I'll let them in. A voice outside shouted, Is that you, Will? Yes, 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 it's me. And as he opened the door, a blaze of lead from each gun blasted into his chest and his groin. The pellets from Ryder's shotgun blew over 30 holes in John's chest, piercing his lungs and breaking his collarbone as well as several ribs, both front and back. The bullet from McLaughlin's rifle passed clean through his groin and dug itself into the frame of the little window at the rear of the kitchen. Mortally wounded, John Donnelly fell back into the kitchen. Oh, oh, Will, I, I'm shot! McLaughlin and Ryder ran immediately to the front of the house and on the way firing seven more shots into the home. Inside, Martin Hogan, William and Nora all sat up in their beds. Oh Will, Nora cried out, I can hear the blood in Johnny's throat. I'm going to get up and go see if I can help him, even if I do get shot too. William Donnelly looked through the blind as Nora lit the lamp which was resting on the bedroom floor. She screamed when she saw John Donnelly bleeding to death in the kitchen. Oh, Will, she cried, he's dying. Draw him in, he whispered. She tried to pull John into the bedroom, but could hardly move him. Will addressed his next whisper to Hogan. John shot, pull him in here. Hogan got down on all fours, crept out to John Donnelly and dragged him into the bedroom. John managed a few last words. My, my God, Will, I'm murdered too. May the Lord have mercy on my soul. 
William kept repeating to himself, Good God, I always thought they would do this, but why tonight? Why now? The three of them stayed huddled in the house without moving for almost three hours. Meanwhile, the vigilance committee of Bidolf trudged onward in the snow towards the house of Big Jim Keith, which lay just inside the Usborne Township. They were about halfway there when Jim freely turned around to face them. I helped to put one son of a bitch out of the way, he later said about his participation in the butchery, and I now know others who put four more away. Now, however, he simply said, there's been enough bloodshed for tonight, boys. Come on, let's go home. And they did. Jim freely agreed that the Donnellys were a hard lot, but then added, but there is a lot less of them tonight, goddamn them. Thus ended the days of the Donnellys in the township of Bidolf. Back at the original Donnelly farm, the house was soon enveloped in flames. When the floorboards burned away, Tom Donnelly's body settled down upon the steaming apples and potatoes in the little cellar below, his head eventually separating from the torso. The same separation took place with the other bodies. After several more hours, all that remained of the house were two logs that formed the front steps. Meanwhile, the vigilance committee had not doubted for a moment that they had killed Will Donnelly, who, however, was alive and cursing his enemies. Yes, the skulking bastards, he swore. They thought they had put me away when they fired the shots, but I would live to see this whole damn thing through. William waited in the house until almost dawn before dressing and going next door to his neighbor. At his request, Walker checked the tracks in the snow with him for future testimony in court. Donnelly dug out of the window frame the bullet which had passed through his brother John and picked up for preservation as evidence the wadding from the buckshot which consisted of a piece of newspaper, the Catholic record. Then he checked the stallion in the stable and found it relatively unharmed, and rode it over to Jim Keefe's to tell him of John's death. Johnny O'Connor nervously had breakfast at the Whelan's, a neighboring farm that he had escaped to. Some neighbors came over, including some of John Carroll's family and some of the two he's with the arrival of word of John's death brought about by Walker there was great excitement in the household. In the confusion, Johnny O'Connor decided to get home as fast as he could, and slipping on a hat of Teresa Whelan, he went over to Donnelly's stable, took out a horse, and rode it home to Lucan. John's body and the remains of the other three were scraped out of the ashes and were taken to the home of Michael O'Connor. Undertaker John Murdy was called in to prepare them for burial. His bill for burying John Donnelly coming to $35, and for the other four bodies, $4. Patrick Donnelly arrived from Thorold and a wake was held on two successive nights, February 4th and 5th. One for the four resting in a rough wooden box serving as a common coffin, and the other for John alone. Jennifer Donnelly, now Jennifer Curie, arrived by stage at 6 o'clock on Thursday evening. When she entered the small log house and saw the coffins, she went into hysterics and continued in this state for almost the whole of that night. Observers stating that, quote, The unfortunate girl being the observed of all observers, scream after scream is wafted out on the night air, the reverberation of which still strikes terror into the hearts of its listeners. End quote. 
A couple hours after midnight on Friday, Robert Donnelly arrived. He wept like a child, it was reported, and he finally fell fainting on the coffin of his brother John. Regaining his composure, he went over to the rough box to view the other remains. And it is said that after gazing at them intently for some time, he picked up the burnt heart of his father and kissed it tenderly. He then performed the same act on the liver of his brother Thomas. End quote. And despite the Donnelly's reputation, on the morning of Friday, February 6th, over 500 people had assembled at the O'Connor House for a funeral procession. In total, in the dead of winter, this meant about 60 or 70 teams of horses and sleighs. There were many rumors circulating throughout the funeral, many insisting that Father Connolly would not allow the Donnelly remains to be interred in a Catholic grave. But putting his personal feelings aside, Father Connolly welcomed the caskets into his congregation hall. Fazakis then writes that, quote, The Mass for the Dead having been concluded, the church fell silent. At the foot of the altar, the priest turned to the congregation. He started to speak in a low voice and choked with emotion. My beloved brethren, he began haltingly, you are in the presence of the most solemn scene that has ever been brought before the gaze of humanity. Then he stopped, overcome by emotion, and declared that his heart was broken. He cried out in a flood of tears, and turned his head back on the people he leaned on at the altar and wept like a child for several minutes. At the same time, sobs broke forth from Mrs. Curry. William Donnelly's features were tightly set, showing the iron will that he is possessed of, but still he was not unmoved. Father Connolly finally recovered his composure and turned again to address the assembly. He again began hesitantly, but as he spoke, he gradually regained more and more of his control. He talked of the laws of God and of man, the spilling of innocent blood, and the day of judgment. He mentioned the victims by name and said, It might be thought I was not in the friendship with this family, but I can truly say that I have no ill will against them. With the old people I always agreed, in particular with the old woman. She came frequently to confession and it was only on last Christmas Eve that she told me of all the sorrows and troubles of her life. At this point, Father Connolly again almost broke down with emotion but continued, On that night, the old woman told me she was trying to get her boys to come to confession. But they did not come, and here is the consequence. O oh God of heaven, please forgive them. The priest concluded by pointing out the terrible disgrace that had been brought upon the parish by the murders and wondered if the people of the district could ever live it down. The ceremony was concluded by his blessing the caskets. They were taken out and consigned to the earth in a plot of the rear cemetery beside the church. After the funeral, the Donnelly family members were invited to tea with the priest and they all accepted the invitation. In private, the priest expressed to them his personal sorrow at the turn of events in Bidolph that night. End quote. In the aftermath of this tragedy, there would be two trials in an attempt to get justice for the Donnelly family. 
The first trial began in February of 1880 at McLean's Hotel in Lucan, Ontario. There were three preliminary hearings before the first trial in October of 1880. During this period, the Crown requested a change of venue, but it was denied due to the perceived bias against the Donnellys in Middlesex County. Johnny O'Connor, a key witness, was targeted by vigilantes who burned down his father's house in an attempt to prevent his testimony. The trial itself took place on October 4, 1880 in London, Ontario. Constable James Carroll was charged with the murder of Joanna Donnelly. The prosecution was led by Mr. Irving, assisted by James McGee, while the defense consisted of Hugh McMahon, William Meredith, and John Blake. The witness list for the prosecution included William Donnelly, Nora Donnelly, and Martin Hogan. Johnny O'Connor provided crucial testimony about the events of the massacre. He described how the vigilantes attacked the Donnelly family and killed Tom Donnelly in a wild manner. William Donnelly also testified, recounting the exact moment he heard the shots and saw the attackers outside his window. The defense witnesses all supported each other's alibis and denied involvement in the crime entirely. After a lengthy deliberation, the jury failed to reach a unanimous verdict, resulting in a hung jury. The jurors had different opinions on Carroll's guilt, with some refusing to convict based solely on O'Connor's testimony. A second trial took place on February 2nd, 1881. This trial was heavily influenced by the judge's actions, one Justice Matthew Crook Cameron, as he sustained many objections from the defense and excluded evidence supporting O'Connor's testimony. The prosecution's case was weakened further by the testimony of Johnny's mother, which was discredited by the defense. The jury, consisting entirely of Protestants, found Carroll not guilty after only three hours of deliberation. Religious tensions in the community played a role in the outcome of this trial. The lack of hard evidence, the influence of various societies, and the religious divide in the community all contributed to the prosecution's inability to secure a guilty verdict. Despite the courtroom outcome, the Donnelly story continued to capture public attention and shape public opinion. But suffice to say, and even after William's years of trying to relitigate the murders, no justice was ever served on behalf of the Donnelly family. And thus, from then on, the Donnelly family's tragic story has become the stuff of legend. It has inspired numerous books, plays, songs, and museums. Thomas Kelly's 1954 novel, The Black Donnellys, popularized their tale even though the family was never called black during their lifetime. The negative associations with the Donnellys persist, but some descendants, like filmmaker Kelly Egan, take pride in their heritage and see it as a part of Canadian history. The tale of the Donnellys contains elements of love, hate, murder, justice denied, betrayal, lying, stealing, and cheating, and capturing people's attention. For a long time, the subject of the Donnellys was taboo in Lucan, with some residents refusing to discuss it due to their connections to the murderers. The Donnelly story has gained popularity in Canadian and American farming communities, but the inhabitants of Lucan and Biddulph Township 
have attempted to suppress it. It was only in recent years that the story became widely known among locals as oral accounts were allegedly suppressed due to the involvement of the residents' ancestors. The emergence of a tourism business focused on the Donnelly story has divided the community, with newcomers embracing it and older inhabitants dismayed by the exploitation of their history. Various myths have also arisen around the Donnelly story, such as the legend of the Midnight Lady and sightings of ghosts near the murder site. Despite attempts to erase their presence in Bidolf, though, the Donnellys have remained alive through Canadian folklore, as Ray Fazakis has noted thoroughly in his book, The Donnelly Album. In the face of personal hardships, Richard Egan, a descendant of the Donnellys, draws strength from his family's history. He has recently experienced multiple losses and battled cancer, but remains resilient, insisting that his Donnelly bloodline encourages perseverance and the will to live. Thank you for listening to this special edition Canadian True Crime slash birthday present edition of Smoke Filled Rooms. Be well and stay tuned. Dark Cast Network, indie pods with a dark side.